Hello, and welcome to another episode of Open Swim with your hosts, Hallie Bram Kogelschatz. Eric Kogelschatz. Brian Andrew Jasinski. Alex Knight. And introducing for the very first time, Lauren Henderson. All right. Let's go. Welcome, Lauren. Lauren, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a recent hire for Shark and Minnow as an associate graphic designer. Um, I am a proud fiance, dog mom, and vegetarian of three years. Excellent. Love that. Welcome to the team, Lauren. Well, we've got a lot to talk about today, so let's just jump right into it. It's 2020, guys. Welcome to the future. And it's here. It is here. New decade. I know. It feels like the future, though. I'm still getting used to it. Every time I say last year, I'm still thinking it's 2018. Right? Yeah, it's weird. I know. So we're all coming around, but alas, we have arrived. And so we've all gotten out our magic eight balls, and we're going to make some predictions for 2020 and beyond. So let's talk a little bit about trends, not just trends for the sake of trends, but what kind of transformative trends do we think are going to emerge in the next year? Brian, what's top of mind for you? One of the things that is at the top of my mind, and I think at the top of not only our nation, but the world's mind, is we are in 2020, and it is, once again, another presidential election year. And we're quickly going to be heading towards March, where this large uh, pool of candidates is going to begin to file down. And before you know it, we're going to be down to our top two candidates. And one of the things that I was researching and thinking a lot about is the idea of cancel culture. And that's been something that has arisen in the past few years. I think social media, in particular platforms like Twitter, has brought a new rising to this idea of cancel culture, which is the idea of if there is a public figure, be them a celebrity in entertainment, politics, business, if there is something that comes out about them, their past, a statement that they made, there is an uprising to quote unquote cancel them. The idea that they are to be wiped away as a punishment for their actions. And as I researched this topic, what really came to light through a lot of the articles I was reading was it's not working. It's almost like you say with a child, if you acknowledge their bad behavior, they're almost going to do it more. What we're seeing in society with cancel culture is that a lot of these celebrities that are being quote unquote canceled It's only giving them a larger platform to have a comeback. So the irony is in this attempt to eradicate them, they are, you're you're planting new seeds for them to only reemerge in a different way. And sometimes that's a good thing. But a lot of times when you have these celebrities who have done something that is seen as unforgivable, they're continuing to thrive and exist in the landscape because of the attention. So Brian, what's an example of that? Like who's really winning when it comes to cancel culture? That shouldn't be winning. (laughs) (laughs) That shouldn't be winning. I think one of the uh, greatest examples is the musical artist Chris Brown. What is the first thing you think of when you think of Chris Brown? Unfortunately, it's not his music. It's the altercation he had with his at-the-time girlfriend Rihanna, literally on their way to the Grammys. However, despite numerous altercations with the law since then, beyond that particular incident, um, very similar altercations and accusations and incidents, he continues to perform, he continues to sell out stadiums, and he continues to chart and perform on major award shows. What message is that sending? That bad behavior, though it may be called out, there are no ramifications. There are examples of celebrities where it is working. Since accusations with Kevin Spacey, for example, you really do not see him. All of his shows he was involved in have been either canceled, he's been fired from 
a movie that he was about to, you know, that was literally about to release, they reshot within two weeks any of the scenes he was in and it continued to release. That to me was the ultimate example of canceling. Literally lifted from a movie and and without a beat, that movie still hit its target date of landing in theaters. So that to me is an example of where it's happening. However, when you do have a celebrity, somebody like Roseanne for making a, a racist tweet, Comedians like Louis C.K., they only seem to see new opportunities arise. Their shows continue to sell out, as I said earlier. Another great example is, you know, in postmortem, Michael Jackson. Several documentaries came out at the same time where decades of accusations that have been, I don't even want to say under the surface, because very public trials of which he was exonerated. However, these postmortem documentaries brought a whole new light and a whole new set of realism to the accusations. There was a a call to completely eradicate Michael Jackson. But how do you do that when you have somebody who's so ingrained in culture and history? I don't think there is a way. It comes down to separating the person from the product. And um, is that something that's able to happen? Well, I guess it calls into question a few things. So the first is, obviously, Michael Jackson is not here to defend himself, whether you think he should be able to do that or not. The legalities surrounding it are that he was exonerated, Brian, as you say, twice. And so we're having this conversation in his absence, so to speak. So, you know, it's interesting to think about that, you know, like when somebody's not there to actually be a part of the conversation, are you able to really fully cancel them? You know, what can you do? What should you do? And that's often happening outside of the courtroom. Mm -hmm. You know, this is really culture that's making these decisions and canceling or not giving them the opportunity of being innocent until proven guilty. And quite honestly, it really makes me think, does it even matter if you're guilty or not? If you're canceled, you're canceled. I mean, there are people that are just, they're done with you. And I think that leads into my second question, which is, The conversation around cancel culture that I've been really interested in in the last few months is, as a society, what do we really want to get out of this? Do we really want people to quietly go away and never be heard from again? Or are we a society that believes in redemption and wants to allow people to somehow repent and return? I don't think that anybody has really solved that yet. And what kinds of egregious acts are able to be come back from versus what do we just want to kind of be done with, so to speak? And then what happens to those people? I think there's a lot of questions around like what happens after you cancel someone and is that a permanent standing? Exactly. And it it does also come down to the idea of through social media, as I said, in particular Twitter, those who don't normally have a voice, groups that have been marginalized, suddenly they have a platform that they didn't have until now. What was interesting in my research is that cancel culture actually could be drawn back to the civil rights movement. So the 50s and 60s. So when African Americans were in the situation with the Jim Crow laws telling them you cannot sit here, you cannot patronize this restaurant, you cannot ride this bus, in their culture, they would quote unquote, cancel that organization, that place, that law. So in that way, it was taking something that was put against them and creating their own power from that and being able to say, we choose not to acknowledge your disrespect of us. And where we find ourselves now, to answer your question, Hallie, is I think it's raising questions of how do we hold these public figures accountable for their actions? And in this court of public law, is that is there the ability to forgive them? Or is it really becoming this situation of we are collectively deciding what your fate is and how we're going to react to your behavior? And creating new standards of how these people in these positions of power and celebrities on on this world stage are allowed to behave and what are we going to accept as a society as acceptable behavior. 
Is Michael Jackson still in the Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I believe he is. We've always come from this place of once history is preserved in a museum, it remains as it was when it was, in a sense, encased. But I do think these institutions are finding themselves having to adapt to the narratives that are out there. I know concurrently when Bill Cosby was being indicted for the several accusations that he was facing, the National Museum of African American History and Culture, they were literally poised to open and they had an exhibit on his impact on entertainment and culture as a very notable figure in that community. And they had to adjust the way that the narrative was told at the end of the exhibit in terms of explaining this is where he finds himself today. So it's that idea of not turning a blind eye. I think that's what's happening is, you know, this has been going on for a long time in terms of bad behavior from people in positions of power. But I think now it's not ignoring it, it's accepting it as part of the tapestry of that narrative of that that person or that institution. Yeah, I, I feel like regardless of what Michael Jackson did or Bill Cosby did and the accusations against them, like what their impact was was still their impact. You can't change that history, but I think that what they were accused of has to be part of their history and it has to be mentioned along with their names. Absolutely. There's no doubt that Michael Jackson had a crazy impact on music and culture in the 80s and a big part of the 20th century. So I think what you're saying, Alex, is that it happened. It's a part of our history. It's there. You can't erase the fact that it happened, but you can make decisions based on what's happened since about how you want to interact with that history. And I think that's what a lot of people are struggling with as far as, you know, like how far do you take that? And again, do you allow somebody if they're able to, you know, it's not possible for Michael Jackson. It may never be possible for Bill Cosby, but do you allow people to, again, repent and return? And that's that's something that I think we're going to be watching in 2020. I think another uh, aspect of cancel culture that you know, we tend to focus on the idea of they did something wrong, therefore we are canceling them. The Another layer to that, however, is canceling somebody whose opinions may not just particularly align with our own. You know, Taylor Swift or J.K. Rowling are two people who recently have had things that they've said in interviews and therefore people are, you know, it went with J.K. Rowling to the extreme of somebody like that did not write the Harry Potter series. You know, because of something she said about transgender uh, community. Therefore, somebody who has that opinion, there's no way she wrote these books connecting to Harry Potter. It's almost like we're trying to create like magic, like, oh, therefore, she magically no longer even wrote those. Like, that's that's literally eradicating that person and, and, and the things that they've done. And the other layer of what I was starting to say about that, though, is it's also creating a, a dangerous comfort zone for yourself is the idea of um, encouraging people to completely remove themselves from environments where others don't agree with them. You know, you're, you're creating this insulated um, environment of, I don't agree with what they do, what they say, how they look, therefore they don't exist. You know, it's a very dangerous road to go down. Even just recently, former President Barack Obama said, quote, this idea of purity and you're never compromised and you're always politically, quote, woke and all of that stuff, you should get over that quickly. The world is messy. There are ambiguities. That's not activism. That's not bringing about change. If all you're doing is casting stones, you're probably not going to get that far. It speaks to that idea that just because you're not placing yourselves in uh, situations where, you know, not everybody perfectly agrees, rather you want those people who remain focused on, you know, the discrimination and the injustice that you believe to be the truth and to be prevalent. 
you know, there's no progress to that. There's no open dialogue. And I think that's that's the challenge, right? I think at the heart of the idea of cancel culture is over the last few years, I will say I, I, I've observed you know, a kind of concerning trend in the media where, you know, it's one way or the other way. There is a very strong hesitation to engage in dialogue with somebody who has different opinions than you do. And it's become, you know, largely fueled by social media, but also mainstream media, kind of a contest as to who yells the loudest. And it's it it is concerning because there are some major issues as a result of, you know, some well meaning individuals or organizations that need to be worked through. I think a great example of this is what's been going on with the Women's March. And I don't know how much you guys have been following this. But the Women's March, which at its core is a really, I think, for a lot of people, a really inspiring event and organization has been plagued pretty much from day one with some heavy anti-Semitic tropes. And there's been a lot of controversy over making sure that women of all faiths and beliefs can be a part of this. And, you know, so there was this whole search and apparently recently they had brought somebody new onto, I believe it was the board or the committee that runs the march. And they had said, oh, we went through an extensive vetting of this person only to find out that this individual basically believed that there should be no Holocaust memorials anymore because the state of Israel was enough. And so she was then asked to leave the board. But again, you know, I think that, you know, with situations like that as an example, it's important to consider that there should be dialogue because there's a place for an organization like the Women's March. The The conversation is about inclusivity and finding ways for lots of people to participate and not just canceling the march. So I use that as an example, but I think we see a lot of this where people of differing opinions are just like, oh, you're doing something I don't agree with. I'm bowing out. I don't want to be a part of it. Whereas maybe we should be engaging in more deep dialogue. And I don't mean to oversimplify it in the case of the march. But I think with some issues, you know, having conversation around it and really deeply working together and collaborating together can solve some challenges. I know we're, we're talking about predictions and where do we see this trend going. From what I'm seeing, and in particular, as I started this conversation, that we are entering what's going to be, a, I know, a very contentious race, and as political races t- tend to be, but I do think this idea of cancel culture will continue with you know, the divides that we're seeing growing more and more every day, and the idea that finding things from people's pasts to hold them accountable for today, despite the level of what it may be, will continue. Well, and I I also would add to that, that I hope that we aren't afraid to, you know, quote unquote, cancel people when it's really warranted. Exactly. Because I think that's the that's the other question we need to ask each other is why are we canceling certain celebrities and not others? Um, You know, I think there are there's plenty bad behavior to go around. And, you know, certain celebrities seem to get a harsher swipe of the stick than others. And so. You know, I think that's that's another good thing to examine is who's telling you to cancel these people and why are you canceling them and what do you want to do with that information? So I think it's just another reason for all of us to be very vigilant about where we're getting our news and doing our homework and examining, you know, how we feel about things. So much in the same way that cancel culture makes a statement about what we're willing to accept as a society, my prediction for a trend in 2020 is that we are moving away from eco-consciousness and even away from eco-shaming to this idea of eco-status as well as eco-expectation. And what I mean by that is that, you know, obviously it's no surprise the popular consciousness has been raised around environmental issues. And I think we've gotten to a place where most people accept that there is 
a climate issue, if not crisis, even people that are a little bit more mild in their language. And it's become trendy to some degree to not use a plastic straw or to use more environmentally sound packaging or whatever, your beeswax wraps that you're using instead of saran. And I think I think we're, we're definitely moving into that realm. And one of the reasons why is because the options are ample. And not only are they ample, but they're more affordable than ever before. So it becomes much more possible for people of varying socioeconomic realms to go green, so to speak. And really, we've gotten to a place where there just aren't aren't many excuses left when it comes to the choices we make in our day-to-day lives. I think that, you know, obviously with big ticket items like cars and obviously travel, that gets a little bit more complex. But even there, there are many more options at more affordable price points that people can choose from. And so, you know, I think one of the examples that best demonstrates this is what's going on with the Impossible Burger at Burger King. So the Impossible Whopper was a thing. It's been a thing for a while. They were $5.59 per burger. And recently, they've started to see that, you know, when Burger King announced this, it was hot. Everybody was excited about it that was more interested in like eating fast food, but going a little bit more plant-based. And so there was this big bubble, right? And now things are starting to taper off and Burger King is getting a much better understanding of what average daily volume in sales looks like. And so what they've done to encourage people to try these burgers, um, so not the early adopters, but your everyday Joe Schmo who's looking to come in for a Whopper, is they've, as of the last week, I believe, they've put the Impossible Whopper on the two for $6 discount menu. I saw an ad for that yesterday. Isn't it great? I mean, so rather than paying $5.59 per sandwich, now you can get two of these Impossible Whoppers for six bucks. So it's almost a buy one, get one. And I think that that makes it so much easier for people to say, okay, I'm willing to try this out. I'm willing to see. And if I don't like it, no harm, no foul. But it gives many more people kind of a gateway into trying a more plant-based option. I think that the other thing that excites me is that you're seeing some really big shifts in the footwear category. And the reason that's important is because a fifth of the environmental impact that's caused by the apparel industry is actually caused by the footwear sector. So whether it's, you know, what you've seen with different companies like Nike making soles out of recycled ocean plastic, or now Reebok's new Forever Float Ride Grow Shoe, which I want to read you this because it's kind of crazy the combination of ingredients this thing is made from. And it's it's pretty good looking shoe as far as a running shoe is concerned. So it says the shoe is composed of four key ingredients, a eucalyptus upper, algae sock liner, and natural rubber outsole. And the hero of the plant-based mission, a midsole comprised of castor beans. So I think that that's really incredible to think about. They're creating a performance shoe that's made entirely out of natural materials. I'm not really sure if this item is biodegradable or what the impact is at the end of its life cycle. But at least in the manufacturing of the shoe, they're using more conscious goods. Speaking on the whole athletic topic here, I actually recently discovered that the Tennessee Titans, 15 of their members on the football team are vegan. And I think that's really fascinating, kind of touching on this whole running shoe thing, how it's really catching on in that sort of celebrity world. For the first time in, I believe, 10 years, they made it into the playoffs for the Super Bowl. And that's just really fascinating that something like that is getting out there. Well, I think it's changing attitudes about what it means to be plant-based. The whole idea of the performance, 
right? It's it's counterintuitive to what most most people think because even alt energy, right? It's alternative to coal, for example. So you expect it's not going to be as good. So when we talk about plant base, you see it's not going to be as good as the original. So when you can disprove that with the fact that a football team can go so far that they did in a season or that an athletic shoe can enhance your performance, it totally disproves expectations. Absolutely. And so I think that, you know, we talk about branding all the time, you know, it's kind of rebranding what it means to be a plant-based athlete. So that could be a really kind of long-term, long-standing change or shift in the way that people feel about how that can affect your performance on the field. Yeah, we see a lot more vegan bodybuilders coming out too. I mean, that that totally turns the, the narrative of what people assume an athlete, in particular a bodybuilder, you know, it's all about protein, 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 and eating boiled chicken breasts. And, you know, so it, it is really incredible when you see, you know, these people that are performing at the levels they are in an athletic sense. Yeah, maintaining their size. And maintaining size and, and performance absolutely and all this is contradictory to what i see for like a vegan person i just think of these hardcore straight edge guys and girls just having parties at their house and bringing big bowls of stew and stuff that's all vegan it's totally different than what vegans is that is that really what you imagine when you think of vegans absolutely that's like my experience the diy punk scene was very much so that way that's what it was you'd have a house party tons of bands would play everyone would be bringing these big like bowls of hummus and all kinds of stuff that they've been making yeah so basically it's what you eat for dinner every night yeah yeah well i mean and look that goes back to what hallie was saying you know we're talking about burger king having a two for six plant-based burger you know being a vegan and a vegetarian has always been because you have to or, or or a choice you did have to be more a lot more creative and do more research and and but the things that are available today the fact that you could go through a drive-thru and get a plant-based meal, it's a game changer. And so I do think, you know, it, more, more people are being exposed to it. The ease is more than ever, you know, and so that really, from Eric, what you were just saying, it's 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 not as difficult of a lifestyle to, to maintain as it was in the past. And I think that's why it's becoming a little bit more mainstream. You know, it's so, it's so convenient now to be vegan because you can go through a drive-thru, you can go to the grocery store, you can make a meal There's in aisles, under 10 literal, minutes aisles of plant-based items and because people want it the demand increases so the price of these products are decreasing so it's available to even more people because when i think of a vegan meal like on a menu i normally think of a really expensive meal because it's like specialty but now not so much i mean you can like how i said you can get a burger or an impossible burger from burger king as part of your two for six i saw an interesting quote from vogue business they have this whole article about the apparel industry and what they're doing to become more sustainable and they say the key to success for these brands isn't their sustainable innovation but that they make products that people want to buy with added environmental incentives part of the issue is not that there haven't been plant-based options. I mean, you look at Morningstar Farms, for example, which I think is a Kellogg subsidiary who's been making veggie burgers for many, many moons. I mean, this was some of the earliest vegetarian product that I remember buying when I became a vegetarian back in high school. So it's been around. It's not that it hasn't been around, but it's never been like, no offense, like I love my Morningstar Farm sausage, but it's GMO. It's not like great quality. And I think there are a lot of people that are looking for something that's a higher quality product or they're looking for a different taste profile. And now they're expecting that in their plant-based options and they're getting it. So I think that that's part of what's driving this is 
it's delicious. Or in the case of apparel, it's fashionable. In this article, what they were talking about from Vogue is, you know, again, there have been eco-friendly or sustainable fashion options for years, but not until the last few years could you find inexpensive options. You know, so like, for example, with shoes, you know, we saw sort of a boom a few years ago with Allbirds. You know, all of a sudden, like this brand seemed to come out of left field and they were everywhere. And, you know, now the rest of the footwear apparel industry is catching up and you have all of these brands, not just in athletics, but also in high fashion, thinking about things like, hey, you know, leather has a huge carbon footprint. How can we innovate to make that not the basis of the core of our products in dress shoes, which is like the hardest category to really crack because that is the category that's most laden with, you know, animal produced leather. And so you see all these brands trying to play catch up. And, you know, there was an interesting quote about the fact that, you know, even if the brand can't make that product today, there's pressure now being put on the manufacturer on the factories themselves to figure out how to work with sustainable materials. And so that's coming both from the consumer side and it's coming from the brand side or the company side. And so they're getting it from both angles and they're going to have to figure it out if the factories themselves want to stay sustainable. So now you're having, you know, to Alex's point, you're having it driven by demand. And, you know, really it's for, you know, the people that make these goods, make these products, make these foods to figure out, okay, how do we get there as quickly as possible so that we can stay solvent? That actually was my prediction for 2020 that with all of this you know being more conscious and mindful with your consuming I think that the rise of eco-friendly packaging is going to be the next logical step for these manufacturers well I think we find ourselves in a place Hallie you were talking about the disposable straws I feel like in a rather a quick period of time you know the fact that you see more paper straws or the metallic straws so now when you do chance upon a plastic straw it's startling like I feel it's shifted that quickly you know when you're seeing bags that aren't reusable or recyclable it's startling so that shift is more than ever I at least I feel it's becoming more and more prevalent I know a lot of people that just refuse to shop at certain stores because everything is wrapped in plastic. And I think we are getting to the place where, you know, we often talk about voting with your dollars. I think people are doing that. And you see stores like Aldi, I believe we've talked about that even on the show, that are moving towards completely plastic-free packaging in the next year. And so it's going to not be an option in the future. It's going to be a mandate. And I think it's just a matter of who catches up the fastest. So here's the thing, you know, we were just talking about the demand for companies to actually fulfill on what they say is important socially and corporately, you know, in the case of environmentalism, like how do you track that? How do you track if somebody's trying to go carbon neutral? Well, the only way you can do it is through smart integrations of technology. And I think, Alex, that's where you were going with your prediction. Yes. Thank you, Hallie, for that. So I asked a question to the group over the past couple of years, let's say the past two years, what's like one of the biggest kind of buzzword trends that you've heard of and i'll give you a hint it's in the technology space any guesses ai ai is a big one vr vr is also a big one ar ar yep alphabet soup so many letters (laughs) automation yes those are all good buzzwords a buzzword that i've been paying attention to lately has been blockchain and i think everyone is fairly aware of the word blockchain and generally what it is we've seen a really rapid rise of blockchain and the technology of blockchain since about 2017 late 2017 we all remember that huge uproar over bitcoin 
how it went from a few dollars and then in a matter of months it went to i think twenty thousand dollars and there's this huge craze and it really got people really excited about what blockchain technology is what bitcoin is so my trend is I see in 2020 and maybe in a couple of years beyond, I see a few things happening in terms of blockchain technology. So with this huge rise in conjunction with cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, we see that Facebook this year is going to introduce its own digital currency called Libra. You see a bunch of big companies that aren't even technology companies saying that they're investing in blockchain technology. IBM is a technology company, but they're heavily invested. And then you look at um, China as a whole. China is investing heavily in blockchain technology, and they want to be the worldwide leader of it. So there's a huge rise of blockchain technology, and it's happening. It's been happening. I think it's going to continue to happen. And in the United States, I think that in our capitalistic society, companies and people in this space, they're not going to self-regulate. They're going to do what they want because they're is no real regulation as of right now they're allowed to it's kind of like the wild wild west of blockchain they can kind of do what they want experiment see what works see what doesn't and that might exploit some people what do you think is the worst case scenario well that leads me to my next point is i think that because of this non-self-regulation something bad is going to happen we've seen examples of it before with different industries like the bp oil spill and the 2008-2009 recession those are both results of industries not regulating themselves and government agencies not regulating them. So I, I don't know exactly what will happen or how bad it could get. But Hallie, I do think something bad will happen. I think that there will be money stolen or, or some sort of value happening that is negative to a lot of people. And I think that that bad thing, I think that will lead to the increase in government regulation, both in the United States and worldwide. So my prediction is that all that's going to happen probably in this year, possibly in 2021, But then I think that because of the increase in regulation, there's going to be a decrease in blockchain innovation and the technology is going to be kind of stifled and bottlenecked and people won't be able to do what they want to do now. They're going to be um, kind of contained to these governmental regulations and parameters that is going to slow down adjacent industries and advancements there. A good example, I think, is just general financial markets as well as 5G technology and the overall kind of rollout implementation of that nationwide. Do you also think, Alex, it's a case of, as you said, if when suddenly there are regulations or restrictions placed on it, the fact that people have begun to become more educated and more adapted to what it is, and then perhaps some of these regulations will, will actually set it backwards, you know, where things that they were you know, learning about or the ability to do with this technology are, are suddenly not even an option. Yeah, Brian, I think that's a really good point. I think that as things get more regulated, as as this technology becomes more regulated and looked at with scrutiny, what we think blockchain is now and what it should be in, let's say, 5 to 10 to maybe even 50 years from now, it could be totally different based on laws and regulations put into place in the next year or two. Right. The appeal of the impact is diminished. Yes, definitely. It sounds like you've got a lot of skepticism around the effectiveness of blockchain in the long term. What do you think companies that are implementing this kind of technology can do to safeguard themselves from the bad actors out there? Yeah, I guess I'm I'm very optimistic about the blockchain technology itself. I'm more um, skeptical of the the lawmakers in place right now and in Congress who are going to regulate it for years to come, essentially. I keep going back to 2019 or 2018, where when Mark Zuckerberg was being questioned. There were a few senators, older senators, who clearly do not understand how Facebook works. 
And they asked basically, you know, because there's a whole thing about Facebook ads and influencing the 2016 presidential election. You know, a few senators asked questions like, well, how does Facebook make money? And Mark Zuckerberg is just looking at them like through advertising. Like that's the answer. And it's just like that's such a basic knowledge set that a lot of these people that we vote in don't have. So something so complicated like blockchain technology and how different companies not only in, in like banking, but in transportation are, are using the technology and want to use the technology. I really don't think that our current lawmakers know even where to start. And so I guess that's the troubling thing to me. I think that's why I'm such a believer in blockchain when it's a part of closed systems where it's not just out there and the data is protected is because that way you have more of a control, let's say in the business world as a client over how your data is being used, who holds the keys to that data and how it can be distributed or, you know, at least have some consent over it. I think that's where a lot of fear and regulation or calls for regulation comes from is this idea that if the data gets into the wrong hands, it could be really dangerous or detrimental at least to people in the future, particularly, you know, when you talk about blockchain in the context of children, you know, I've been in some conversations recently with some nonprofits that are doing some incredible work, and they want to be able to track that work. And so they've thought about integrating blockchain technology into their programming so that they can understand over time, you know, how their efforts are able to really impact students beyond test scores. And I think that's a phenomenal idea. The question, though, becomes for these minors, you know, somebody has a hold of their data as it pertains to their educational performance? How might that impact them as they move into adulthood? You know, in cases like that, I think it's really important to think about, you know, rights and consent and um, not only that, but, you know, what happens in the future and for how long do companies have the ability to really own data that has the possibility of impacting people for the long term? The way I understand it is block, like blockchain, once a transaction is like made, like it's public. So I don't know exactly how that data is stored, but it's like on a public ledger so people can see it. Like you could you could log on right now and see all the worldwide Bitcoin purchases and things like that. So, Well, like Maersk, like Maersk has their own blockchain and that's not public. You have access by users. It can be private. It doesn't have to be public. Well, and like I said, it could be a part of a closed system. So again, there may be the option to put some governors on blockchain and... I guess the question then becomes, you know, how does that provide transparency into some of the categories that Lauren was talking about before with food and packaging and where it was manufactured? You know, I think, Alex, you brought up you went to go purchase a sandwich a couple of weeks ago and on the package it told you. Yeah, it basically had, um, I don't remember if it was a barcode or a QR code, but it basically said like, see where, I think it was salmon. And I think I think it said like, scan this and see where your salmon was farmed or where it came from. In that case, if you were to put a governor on blockchain, to what extent, what parameters, you want the public to be able to use that information to make conscious buying decisions, particularly if you as a brand have something positive to say. But if somebody is collecting data that could potentially impact the lives of another human being, it gets into this area, this great, very gray area of consent. And how far are we willing to make data open in order to allow us to make conscious buying decisions without sacrificing people's rights to privacy. Yeah, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with Mark Zuckerberg. I think that's why he had to speak in front of the Senate, right, about people's data and privacy. So there's that's kind of why I'm skeptical about it, because I think that's going to be that whole can of worms is going to be opened again in terms of just blockchain technology and how it works. And then something I just don't know what it is. I think something bad is going to happen. And then it's going to result in like 
crazy government oversight. There could be misuse by the corporations involved, the users that have access to the data, and even worse, in our current environment warfare, it's cyber security, you know, and, and cyber attacks. So that's why these regulations are required because we don't know who wants the data and what they want to do with that information. Absolutely. You know, and there are laws in place, much like HIPAA, that allow certain data sets to be protected. And so if you're talking about medical data, theoretically, that's an area where there are some restrictions on what can be tracked and how that can work into a blockchain type system. But not every industry has something like HIPAA. So maybe that's the the answer here is it's not about the tool, much like we talk about. It's about the application of the tool and who is going to be responsible for regulating that. And that sort of remains to be seen. All right. So when we were prepping for this podcast, I just want it to be known that Eric said a specific agenda for this podcast and said that each of us should select a very, very specific trend that we predict will materialize in 2020. But Eric has more of a broad brush. It's very look. general. It's very general. Isn't that convenient? And oh, it's yeah. and it's very inspirational. I I, I always stay away from technology. Always the optimist. I, I was I was uh, I was thinking about mankind. Uh huh. All right. Well, human. I was thinking about humankind. All right. Okay. Hit me with it. I believe that 2020 will be the year individuals, communities, corporations, and organizations adopt ubiquitous resiliency and that it will open hearts minds and opportunities okay so ubiquitous resiliency so it's everywhere baby what does this mean the idea that people will build infrastructure concepts that can stand the test of time but they are able to adapt that still stay true to the original concept so one idea is civility we had rules around how people should interact and work with each other and it's gone out the window over the last five years, I would say, maybe longer. I believe that in this year, we'll see people rise up or communities rise up to define how we should interact with each other and what's acceptable and what's not. I will say that I'm having a lot of conversations, even, you know, we're not even a month into the year, but I'm having a lot of conversations in the nonprofit world, both in those that we interact with, as well as those that I just happen to be personally involved with, that seem to be around this idea of let's take back our responsibility to really make change for ourselves. And let's really not let somebody else dictate what we're able to do. Let's do it through collaboration with, you know, presumably, you know, people that are outside of the the networks that we serve and finding ways to come together where, you know, we can force change. A lot of those conversations, you know, in my world tend to be around, you know, women that have a role within the philanthropic world or people that are, you know, I had a conversation just this morning around women that are trying to really change the narrative on um, what it means to be a woman of color and to get proper prenatal care. And how do we work as a community of women, you know, even if you're not a woman of color to really change that story together and make it a point of pride for all of us. And so I think that that personal responsibility, that that ownership is something I see shifting, or at least people wanting to really step up, roll up their sleeves and say, okay, no more is it enough for me to just kind of donate through dollars. I need to make my time and, and my words, you know, mean something as well. Yeah. People need to rise up, state how they feel and focus on the actions that support those. So that's all you got for us? No, that's not it. So also the idea of care. So just like Alex was talking about with 5G, quantum computing, all that's going to change healthcare. Okay. With the idea of wearables and AI, telehealth, all these different things. But if you talk to any physician, they talk about how that's taking them away from the patient. So my hope is that 
in this next year that returns to that care by using technology as a tool, not the the intermediary for that connection with the patient. Yeah, no, I, I really have, I have hopes for that as well. So another idea? Yeah. Resiliency, focus on connections. So everyone's talking about infrastructure right now, building roads, bridges, et cetera. The Sioux locks, we know that very well here at Truck and Middle. But are these pieces of infrastructure being built for the future of transportation? Are they going to think about different modes, whether it be autonomous vehicles, et cetera? We're investing a lot of tax dollars into this infrastructure. Will it support the infrastructure of the future. Well, and I also think a lot about sustainability and not just in terms of the kind of power that you use to power these buildings or facilities of any kind, but what are they doing to think about bioswales or how to deal with water or any number of environmental issues that could result from climate issues, but also how do they have a lesser impact on the environment? And I mean, I will say in Cleveland, as I drive around, I have questions about the kind of building that's being done. I don't think it looks like it's changing. It doesn't seem like there are these massive shifts in the types of materials that are being used to construct new projects throughout the city. But maybe that's something that, again, through either popular opinion or through massive collaboration efforts, which let's hope we see more of them, we can start to force that change. But that's another reason to really make a stand on where you live, the kind of place that you're choosing to live in, the amenities that you have access to, your ability to take public transportation, for example, I think is a is a really key part of this as far as really making a case for what you hope to see more of and where you hope to see it throughout your cities. Absolutely. So I also see this idea of resiliency in commerce. So there's a lot of talk about retail, but I'm I'm specifically looking at the idea of finance and also trade. So everyone talks about the looming recession. So you'll see financial institutions putting protocols in place to protect themselves and their customers from the, the, the recession. And also the trade, the wars will continue, but we'll start to see that resolve but you'll start to see, for example, specifically talking about trade, you're going to see shippers build in resiliency protocols so that it protects themselves from this dynamic environment. Related to trade, but in the consumer sense, I think what's happening in China is really interesting in terms of how Chinese citizens are driving demand for eco-friendly packaging. I just read an article about this. And so I'm curious to watch what happens here. If you have China, which I think one in six human beings on the planet is Chinese interested in sustainable packaging. And then you see this massive trend in places like the United States and Europe emerging around, you know, going greener or more sustainable. I think that there's a lot that can be can be driven. And then how does that affect the shipping industry? Because likely a lot of that packaging will need to be shelf stable to be able to endure shipping or maybe it isn't manufactured internationally maybe it's more manufactured domestically to wherever those products need to be distributed and so it really could disrupt the supply chain in a massive way so i think that's the other piece of this is not just what are the politics around trade but what are the taste and attitudes around the goods that we consume and then what does that do to our supply chain or our manufacturing you know way of making goods. Absolutely. So another idea of resiliency is corporations and specifically the future of work. So 
you know, a lot of people are focusing on the digital tools uh, of how people work. But I'm more interested in how work is conducted. So the idea of bringing multidisciplinary teams together and being more collaborative. And then also the idea of who is working. So making sure that we have inclusive environments so that it has those open doors for people to work. So you'll start to see that change. So definitely a trend line there back to civility. And the last one is resiliency in cities. So I believe that in 2020, you'll see a lot of cities coming out with guidelines around, of course, privacy of the data that's being captured from technology introduced into cities, but then also rewarding citizens for initiatives that do achieve carbon neutrality. So for example, maybe they'll have a zone where there are no cars allowed or only rideshare. Composting will be encouraged. All these different aspects will be heightened to a whole new level. And right now it's just people are introducing these services to cities, but I think cities will be much more proactive about it. So yeah, this idea of ubiquitous resiliency and civility, care, connections, commerce, corporations, cities will be a dominant theme in 2020. I love that you're going into this so optimistically. Oh man, all the way. It's a whole new Eric. My Bigger Boat is in support of Countdown, which is a new initiative that TED has put together with a number of partners, including the authors of the Paris Climate Accord. Countdown is a worldwide movement to find ways to shift more rapidly to a world with net zero greenhouse emissions and tackle the climate crisis. As depicted on their website, they say we need to engage everyone, politicians, CEOs, investors, media influencers, activists, citizens all over the world, young and old. We all have a role to play, including you. So they're looking to do this through five giant questions and the addressing of these questions. Questions around power, built environment, transportation, food, and nature. I really encourage you to learn more at countdown.ted.com. This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes out to the Tennessee Titans. Thanks to the documentary Game Changers that came out, I learned that 15 of their members are plant-based. And, you know, it's just really inspiring to see people of that size and with their strength to be so powerful still on that diet that kind of like Eric mentioned earlier, that diet has a tendency to feel, you know, scrawny and weak. So it's just really great to see that hitting the athletic world. This episode, My Bigger Boat, is in alignment with our focus today on both cancel culture as well as the uprising of environmental advocacy and initiatives. And I'm going to give My Bigger Boat to the Cuyahoga County canceling single-use plastic bags. Though this law does not go into official state of ban until July of 2020, I have already noticed that several major retailers have completely eradicated the use of these bags. CVS, Giant Eagle are two examples that in the new year I've already seen. Everybody is walking around with the paper bags, and I know, for example, Giant Eagle, there's an initiative when you use your own bag. For every bag that you use, you are getting a fuel perk. So they're they're using it as you know you're being rewarded for adapting th- this new way of, of shopping in a sense. So bigger boat goes to the cancel of the culture of plastic bags. This episode of My Bigger Boat goes out to the Blockchain and Transport Alliance organization. It's a member-driven organization comprising of members that are mostly in the freight and transportation logistics industries. And these members are really driving the adoption of emerging technology. 
they're focused on developing industry standards, educating members and other people on blockchain applications, and encouraging the use and adoption of new solutions. This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes out to Tony Hawk. So I was in New York recently, and I was leaving a hotel, and as I was going toward the door, I saw Tony Hawk. And I was... And what did you do? I... Did you say hello? No. Did you give him a nice word? Did you tell him he's been your idol since you were a teenager? No. I didn't tell him any of these things, even though they're all so true. Instead, I just started laughing, and I stared at him, and I cannot get over that fact because I think he's an amazing person. And I'm actually going to say he gets my bigger boat for 2019 because he ended the year doing something pretty special. He went around to skate parks in San Diego and would go around with kids. And if they could do a kickflip with them, then he gave them a free skateboard. What's really notable about this is it was the same week that he lost his mother. And oddly enough, I was reading some articles because I was curious why he was in New York. And it turns out he was there for a media event, but also he was meeting with family to celebrate the life of his mother. It says a lot about him as a person because he can give to the community and support those that supported him through the years. And he still is able to hold that presence despite what's going on in his life, like losing a parent. So I really respect that. And Tony, I know you're not listening, but I really wish I would give you a hug. This episode is in support of Rust Belt Riders, who since 2014 has been working with people and organizations across Northeast Ohio to provide them with a clean and timely alternative to landfills for their food waste. Learn more at rustbeltriders.com. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, we are at Shark and Minnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marcia Ciccone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey.